today we're going to go over the story of the Mahabharata. And uh, the story is multi-generational. It's uh, the great epic of India. And uh, so I've, it's impossible to tell all the stories in one class. There's all kinds of uh, hair-raising, cliffhanger, exciting stories we won't be able to go into, especially from the earlier generations. But um, the main characters of the Mahabharata the central characters of the Mahabharata are the five Pandava brothers. And the middle brother, Arjun, is the one that speaks with Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the most important text in Hinduism. So, uh, so I'm going to focus the narration on the Pandavas. And to give a little context, I just go back one generation. Uh, three brothers, the, uh, the most important dynasty. That's okay. Happened in the best of so, the most important dynasty in India at that time is the Kuru dynasty. The Kuru dynasty. And, and the Kurus are mentioned in the earliest Vedic literature. And their, uh, their capital was at Hastinapur. Hastinapur, as I mentioned before, is just about, oh, I don't know, 50 or 60 miles, whatever it is, approximately northeast of Delhi, what is now Delhi, on the Ganges River. So that's the great Kuru dynasty that really dominated uh, India at that time. So when we pick up the story just before the Pandavas are born, uh, there are three Kuru brothers. The oldest one is Dhritarashtra, who was born blind and therefore couldn't rule. He was disqualified from ruling because in those days the kings were also warriors and had to physically protect the people. So the eldest brother that normally would have become king could not be. So his name is sort of, a, it's almost like a sarcastic historical memory. His name literally means one who held on to the kingdom. Is that? Oh my God. Everyone close your eyes for a second. So, um, because he's going to usurp the kingdom, actually. Therefore, his name is Dhritarashtra. His brother was Pandu, who's one of the great heroes of the Mahabharata. And, uh, Pandu was the second son who actually became king. And uh, Pandu had two wives. Vidarasa had one wife who doesn't really figure in this genealogy. His wife was Gandhari, the one from Afghanistan, which was part of the same culture area. Anyway, Pandu took the throne, and Vidarasa was never quite thrilled about the fact that even though he was the eldest, he was born blind, he couldn't be king. So Pandu, and then there's a younger brother who I didn't put up there. So these are the two brothers we'll be concerned with, uh, Pandu and Dhritarashtra. Pandu married two wives. One is Kunti, one is Madri. Kunti was the first wife, and she's extremely important because her brother is Vasudev, who is the father of Krishna, who is ultimately the uh, <coughs> sort of the reason for the season in the Mahabharata. So, so Kunti, the wife of Pandu, is Krishna's uh, aunt. And of course, Vasudev's wife is Devaki, Krishna's mother, and also Krishna's brother, Balaram, who is also considered to be another avatar. So, therefore, Krishna and the five Pandavas were cousins. And that's a very important relationship. Krishna and his brother, Balaram, and the Pandavas were the main characters in Mahabharata, these five brothers, uh, their cousins. And on the other side, uh, on, their, um, so on their mother's side, the Pandavas' cousins are Krishna and Balaram. On their father's side, their cousins are the Kurus. So this is all a family thing. It's like if you study European history. The royalty was all related because 
royalty married royalty, and there's not that much royalty to go around. And so if you study the history of most parts of the world, you'll find that royalty tends to be related. And so in that sense, battles and wars and everything tend to always be at some level within the family. That's certainly the history of Europe. It's also the history of India to a great extent. So, um, what? Abhinarastra and his wife Gandhari had 100 sons, sort of under laboratory conditions, that's another story, but they had 100 sons who were called the Kurus. The eldest son was Duryodhana, whose name means something like dirty fighter, or it can also mean someone that's hard to fight with, like Dudo de Belio, anyway, in Spanish. So, anyway, Duryodhana is sort of the villain. He's sort of the villain of the story. And uh, he, anyway, we'll find out what he does. So, the five Pandavas uh, each have very distinct characteristics. One thing is about Pandu. Pandu was sort of a sportsman. He liked to go out in the forest. He liked to camp out. He, there's a common thing we found in the Ramayana also. The Rama, even though he had all this royal opulence, he liked to get out of the city, go out to the country, and just, you know, get away from it all. And so Pandu, uh, after sort of bringing the whole world under the, well, the known world in India, under the control of the Kurus, at that point, he, uh, he went out to the country. He wanted to sort of camp out, go out in the country, be an outdoorsman, and so on. So one day he was hunting. And again, this is one of those hunting accidents where kings hunted, but there's always these disastrous hunting accidents. So in the case of Pandu, he saw a deer couple, and he shot them. But the deer couple were actually in the act of begetting. And th there's the whole story behind this. Our next contestant. Hey, Kadoti. I'm sorry. But uh, there you go. So, uh, it turns out there was this Brahmin couple who were performing severe austerities. They were like shramanas in the forest. And they performed austerities so long and were such, so deeply into their asceticism and yoga that when they finally decided to, okay, that's enough austerity, let's have a family now, they had become really frigid. They, they couldn't just do it. Because they just spent years and years and years just absorbed in, these, in this heavy asceticism. So therefore, they used their mystic power, their yogic power, to take the form of a deer couple, because deer couples don't have problems to just do it. I mean, deer are known to be kind of prolific in that regard. So they, became, they, they took the form of a deer couple, and they were in the act of begetting when Pandu shot them. And it, it's this very dramatic scene where when, when the deer is shot, it lets out this terrible cry of a male deer, a cry in a human voice. And of course, Pandu is completely shocked. And then this Brahman declares you that you killed me, a Brahman. And of course, you have to understand in this context that the kings, they sort of lived to serve the Brahman. That was their main dharma. And actually... Uh, Rama's father had the same problem. He accidentally killed a Brahmin in a hunting accident. So, because, because the, the kings would hunt in the forest, and Brahmins and sages lived in the forest, and there must have really been hunting accidents back then. Anyway, so then the, this Brahmin declares with this power he's developed, this is a very common theme, all these austerities and yoga, they've developed all these powers, this mystic power, so with this power he, he declares that I won't curse you for killing a Brahmin because you didn't know that I was a Brahmin, but you did kill us when we were in the act of begetting, and the act of begetting is sacred, and no creature should be harmed in the act of begetting. And therefore, because you killed us at that moment, therefore you will also die in the act of begetting. 
if you ever try to beget a child, you will die. The, the Brahman puts his curse on him. So when this happens, Pandu is, of course, devastated for two reasons. Number one, uh, he's just killed a Brahman and his wife. So, so that alone is, is completely devastating for him. And secondly, he can't beget a son. And this was extremely important because, uh, because families in those days, this topic I, I haven't really got around to, but it, there's a whole psychology and sociology of the extended family. And in order to really understand everything that's going on back then, you have to understand the psychology and sociology of pre-industrial extended families. When, when the world industrialized and urbanized, people moved to cities, families were basically atomized, broke down into nuclear families, and it, it creates a whole different concept of life. And if someone reminds me, I'll explain that someday, but it's a completely different psychology. You live in a different world in pre-industrial societies. So these families were like great, you could say, corporations. And so to continue the family dynasty was extremely important. So Pandu was devastated. It's a big issue in this literature, the need for a king to keep his dynasty going. So Pandu is so devastated. What he does is he, he goes up into the mountains, way up into the Himalayan mountains, about, uh, about say, 10, 11, 12,000 feet up in the mountains. And uh, he becomes a yogi. He's still technically the king. But he sends word back to the imperial capital that Pandu is not coming back and so he rules through his brother. Pandu is still officially a king, but he rules through his brother, Dhritarashtra, who is very sorry to hear the news and very glad to hear the news. So Pandu decides he's just going to focus on his salvation, his enlightenment. He becomes a perfect yogi. But even though he's become a perfect, and, and his wives go with him, he tells them that, you know, I'm going way up into the mountains. Why don't you go back to the city? You're not going to be happy up there. It's like really rugged. But they insist, no, we love you, and, and that's the life we want. We want. We want to be with you. So they go with Pandu, and after, actually all three of them really become enlightened, Pandu confesses to these women that I'm still frustrated because I really wanted to have a child. I really wanted to keep our family going. And so Kunti then admits something, a secret, which uh, she had never told her husband. And that is... Uh, this is better than those magazines you get at the checkout. Um, anyway, when Kunti was a young teenager, she was a princess. Her father, actually her foster father, was uh, Kunti Boja. And uh, she loved to serve the visiting sages and Brahmins and guests. She was like devoted to hospitality and, and she loved to serve the sages, the wise people that came to the palace. And so one day a sage named uh, Durvasa came to the palace and uh, she served him. She was just a young teenage girl, but she served him with such devotion, with such attention that he was deeply moved. And by his own yogic power, he saw that this girl will have trouble in her future. And therefore he gave her this mantra, this power. He said that if you chant this mantra, you can call any god and this god will... When he meant to tell her sort of like in sort of being very polite about it was, was God will give you a child. She didn't really fully understand. She was a very innocent young girl. And so after the sage left, she thought she'd just kind of like fool around with it, you know, see how it works, push the different buttons on the mantra. So she looked up at the sun and, and she imagined how handsome the God of the sun must be. And so she kind of, you know, uh, you know, she just typed in sun God. And suddenly, suddenly the sun god just came right through the window of her palace. And the sun god was there. 
and said, like, okay, I'm here. And because the sun god was, was forced by the power of the mantra to give her a child. This is a young girl in, in, an, in an extremely conservative religious society. And she said, so she told the sun god, I think I got the wrong number. <laughs> but, the, but the sun god himself was controlled by the power of this mantra, and so he gave her a child, and then, which is a, a typical theme, he again made her a virgin. So technically she was a virgin again. But still, she had this child, and she, basically it was, she, it was traumatic for her. She could not emotionally deal with it. She was a young girl. And so therefore, and this is very much like the... Uh, you know, your Old Testament, she put the little baby in a basket, just like uh, the mother of Moses did, and sent it down the Nile. And so the, uh, and so Kunti, this young girl, sent her little baby in a basket. Again, down a river, the baby wasn't going to die, there were people all up and down the river, and so, and, and, and the couple took this child, and that child became Karna, who was one of the great figures of the Mahabharata. And anyway, it's a very powerful story. No one knows that she had this child. And so at this point, when Pandu, up in the mountains, is, is desperate to have offspring, de desperate to keep his family going, Kunti admits, not that she's had a son before, she simply says that when I was a girl, a great sage gave me this power, and I can call any god, and we can beget children. So this, by the way, after a long discussion on different strategies. So Pandu is thrilled by this idea. Kunti doesn't want to do it, but, but he insists, please do it for me, because she's actually in love with her husband. But he begs her to do it. And so, first, uh, he calls Dharma, the god Dharma. And the reason he calls Dharma is because he reasons that if Dharma himself begets this child, who can say the child is not Dharma? Who can say this child is not a legitimate child, not a virtuous child, if the very father is Dharma, <coughs> the god of Dharma? So he calls Dharma, or I'm sorry, Kunti calls Dharma, and he... And Dharma begets in Kunti the first Pandava Yudhisthira. Now, tech legally, according to Dharma, again, the law, according to the law of the universe, these Pandavas are Pandu's children, even though they're not genetically his children, but by the sacred law, there's something which is called, um, which you find in the scriptures, Apa Dharma. Apa means emergency or crisis. And so just like to give a simple example, uh, let's say... You go home one day, and God forbid your, your neighbor's house is on fire, and you know that there are children sleeping in the house, and the parents aren't there. And so basically, you break into the house. If you have to you know, bust the window or kick the door down or hit it with an axe, somehow you get into the house, you take the kids, and you save them, and you become a hero. Now, let's say there's not a fire in the house, and you take an axe and you know, knock down your neighbor's door, take the kids out. Basically, you'll go to jail for a very long time. <laughs> so, so in this ancient culture, you know, the good news is they have common sense. And therefore, there's a category called Apa Dharma, emergency Dharma, Dharma at a time of crisis of emergency. So therefore, because of the circumstances, these children, by law, were considered to be fond of children. Then... Uh, they reasoned, Pandu reasoned that we need a child who's not only super virtuous and dharmic, also, in order to rule a dynasty, you need power. So he calls the wind god. He asks his wife to call the wind god because the wind is considered to be most powerful, the wind god. And then, uh, through that union, Kunti begets Bhima, who is the most powerful, the most physically powerful of the Pandavas. Yudhisthira was the one who was 
he was so dharmic, he was almost like, like a Brahmin, in fact, that was the problem. He would always think like a Brahmin instead of a warrior. And he, but anyway, Bhima was the most physically powerful. Then, uh, basically, Pandu said, let's just go for the Grand Slam here. Let's just, let's just go for it. And so he, he wanted to call Indra, who's the, sort of the head of the gods, the head of the administrative gods. So they called Indra, and the child begotten by Indra, who would be most prominent, because Indra is the most prominent god, was, of course, Arjun. And Arjun was the best friend of Krishna. And therefore, it's to Arjun that Krishna spoke the Bhagavad Gita. So that was the third Pandava, uh, lefty Arjun. He was actually a lefty. For those of you who are left-handed, you can identify with Arjun. So then, uh, at that point, Madri, the other wife, came to her husband and said, this is kind of depressing for me. I'm really happy to get all these sons, but I can't do anything. And so, uh, therefore, she asked if Kunti could call gods for her also, so she could also, like, take part in all this. So, uh, Kunti said, all right, she would call a god for Madri. Then Madri decided to get, you know, two for the price of one, so she called the two Ashwins. <laughs> These are these twin gods uh, who are sort of like the physicians of the gods who don't get sick very often, but anyway, so the two Ashwins, she called the two Ashwins, were very beautiful. They're kind of like fountain of youth, extreme makeovers, the face you always wanted, <laughs> kind of gods. So, anyway, so Kunti calls the Ashwins, and, uh, and then gets twins, these very beautiful, the most beautiful of the Pandavas, the most handsome, sort of like, you know, drop-dead, good-looking movie star Pandavas. So, that's Nakula and Sahadev, and they're the younger. So, they're all considered sons of Pandu, they're all Pandavas, but um, they have two different mothers. And what happens is, just to sort of fast-forward this, um, Pandu, the curse sort of kicks in at a certain point, and even though Pandu I mean, one of the reasons he went up to the mountains and became a yogi is because he really needs to conquer his sex desire. Because if he tries to have intercourse, he'll die. And so that's why, that's one of the reasons he took up this life of yoga. And so after these five sons are born, the curse actually starts to take hold of him. And uh, because the curse is sort of not simply that if you ever try to do this, but you will do this. And so one day it's spring up in the mountains and you know, spring in the mountains can be very beautiful, as you can tell for those of you who, you know, hiked in the Florida mountains. <laughs> so, anyway, so it's spring in the mountains, and Madri, you know, it, it, it's sort of a warm day, and Madri hasn't got a lot of clothes on, and no one really lives up there, and uh, so she's kind of a little scantily dressed, and uh, just sort of going around picking wildflowers and things, and Pandu sees her, and... You know, it's kind of like all over. And the, the sort of the curse takes hold of him, and he goes after her. He wants to, you know, he wants to, to have intercourse with her. And she's absolute, in absolute panic because she understands it will kill him. So she's desperately trying to get away, but he's now under the control of the curse. And, and, and he's sort of, you know, he's a huge, strong warrior. And so he, you know, he grabs her, and, and then the minute he tries to enjoy her, he dies. There's this very dramatic scene where uh, Madri just cries out this horrible cry, and Kunti immediately understands what it is, and so she just orders her sons, like, get away. And uh, anyway, so what happened is that uh, Madri, by her own power, by the, own power by, by the power she's developed, because she's a great yogi by now also, she actually goes with her husband 
and these powerful women, according to this yoga understanding, have the power to actually journey with their husbands to the next life. And um, there's even a discussion between Kunti and Madri because they both want to go with Pandu and, and, and Madri gives this argument. She says that you are actually in a sense more noble than me because I, as much as I love your children, I can't love them exactly as I love my own. But you actually can love all five of them equally. And, and plus, she said, Pandu is actually desiring me when he left this world. I have to satisfy his desire. I have to go with him to the next world. So that's the discussion takes place and Madri goes with Pandu. And so they're both gone. So now, you have these five Pandavas. Anyway, the, that's the beginning of the story. I mean, well, the beginning of the Pandava story. So these, and these are just boys now. I mean, their ages, you could say there may be, let's say they may range in age from 12 down to 8 or something like that. Maybe 13 to 9, but that's roughly their age. And so these are five boys who, although they have this super warrior blood in them because, because their fathers are these gods, they're actually not even fully human. They're, they're half gods and half humans, and they have this sort of this celestial power in them, but they've grown up as yogis. I mean, they wear, they wear deer skin, they have matted locks, they're like classical yogis. They've never seen a city, they've never seen an army, they've never seen a horse, they've never seen an elephant. They've actually grown up like 10 or 12,000 feet up in the mountains. The only people that lived up there were these renowned sages and yogis living way up in the mountains. And so now, uh, so Peter Ostra hears, of course, about the death of Pandu, the death of Madhuri, and he sends for them. He sends for the Pandavas. And his motives, of course, he has different motives. For one thing, uh, you know, they're his nephews, and he really cares about them. For another reason, they're the legitimate heirs of the throne, which he now holds and which he wants for his sons. And so he actually fears the Pandavas as much as he loves them and wants to take care of them. And so he sends for them. He sends them. He, he wants them to come back. So imagine these boys. I mean, and, and if you know the geography of India, they're way up in the mountains, and they're coming down from the Himalayan mountains. They're above the tree line, practically. And they're coming down through the forest. They come down to, you know, past the tree line, and then past, then they finally get into the foothills of the Himalayans, and they come all the way down, the highest mountains in the world, down to the Ganges Valley, into the imperial capital of Hastinapur. And so imagine, you know, your father just died, one of the two mothers just died, and on top of that, for the first time in your life, you come into a city, and it's not just a city, it's the imperial capital, and, and so and these are just boys seeing all this. They've never seen this. They actually, they actually, the Mahabharata describes they actually come down into the imperial capital dressed in their deer skin and their matted locks like yogis, these young boys, seeing all these things. You know, elephants, horses, armies, palaces, and when they get there, their uncle, they have a good uncle, Vidura, who's the younger brother of Pandu. He's the real good guy, the wise, I mean, the real wise person. And after a short time, he calls them aside and says, says to them and their mother that, by the way, there will be an attempt to assassinate you. Because Duryodhana, Duryodhana, uh, the, uh, the youngest son, there's this powerful story in Mahabharata. When he was first born, they would have these uh, Jatakovidas sort of astrologers who were like expert at, at reading birth signs. And so Duryodhana was born, it's like the bad omens went off the charts. <laughs> it was so bad that actually all the Brahmins begged Dhritarashtra to renounce his son, don't accept him as a prince, because this person will destroy your dynasty. And Dhritarashtra was too attached, and so he kept Duryodhana's son, and it, well, 
you'll see what happens. So anyway, Duryodhana, the Pandavas come back, and after a short time, Duryodhana, who's maybe like 12 or 13, actually plots to assassinate them. He especially wants to kill Bhima, because Bhima's kind of his age. Arjuna and Krishna are the same age. Bhima's the same age as Duryodhana, and Bhima's really powerful, and so he plots to, he actually starts to plot to kill him, and he really wants to kill all the Pandavas. So imagine these boys, what they're going through. Anyway, so they grow up. Somehow they survive. They survive. Bhima's very powerful. And um, so when they're teenagers, when they get to be sort of like older teenagers, uh, Duryodhana has another plan to kill them. He, he really is determined to kill them. And he can't do it openly because the Pandavas are extremely popular with the people. And as I mentioned before, there actually was a type of constitutional democracy. People had freedom of speech. Throughout the Mahabharata, you find people could just go out in the street and criticize the king. And there was no punishment for that. There's not even a hint of it. You could just go out and criticize the government if you wanted. People had freedom of speech. They had freedom of religion. It wasn't like, you know, off with their heads. Something from Alice in Wonderland. So, anyway, so politically speaking, he couldn't kill them. Because if it was known that he killed them, the people actually would rebel. Because the Pandavas were so popular. So therefore... He hatched this plan. He said to his father, Dhritarashtra, who would kind of look the other way, kind of knew what Duryodhana was doing, but pretended he didn't know. So Duryodhana said, just give me a year. If I have one year, if I can get rid of them for a year, then I can, you know, I can bribe people different ways, you know, offer them money, offer people positions, because we're the leading dynasty, and I can get the power I need. I can solidify my power. Just give me a year. So therefore, what he did, what he does is, uh, Duryodhana starts having all kinds of people in the, in the capital talk about this incredible tourist city, this great resort city called Varnavata. It's up in the foothills, it's a beautiful city, you've got to see it, it's like the place to go. And so after this, after this had been going on for a while, uh, Vidarashtra, working with Duryodhana, you know, who's, supposed to, who's supposed to see by Dharma, the Pandavas are really his sons now, but he doesn't really see them as his sons. And so he calls in the Pandavas and says, hey, I thought you guys might really like to take a vacation. How about one year in Varnavata? And so the Pandavas, again, they grew up as sages. They grew up as yogis. They grew up in the mountains. We talk about coming, like coming from the country, like kids that really grew up in the country. Yes, sir. No, sir. I mean, they grew up way in the mountains. So, you know, Dhritarashtra is our father now. So, yes, sir. Yes, of course, sir. So then what Duryodhana does is he sends his minister, Parojana, to build a house for the Pandavas, which is an absolute fire trap. He's going to burn the house down and murder them. And so basically the house is made totally inflammable. Everything that burns quickly is put into the walls of the house. The Pandavas go there. They're very popular with the people. And then Vidura, Vidura warns them as they're leaving the capital. Vidura warns them by this riddle, because everyone's around. He can't speak to them privately. He, he, he tells them, those who know the directions escape the disaster, and, 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 and uh, the wise person knows a soul cannot be burned by fire. He just starts speaking all these things. Anyway, so then after the Pandavas go there, he actually sends an engineer, he sends a professional engineer there to dig a tunnel under the house so the Pandavas can escape. And so that whole year, while they're living there, the Pandavas suddenly discover this tremendous interest in nature. So they start going way out in the country because... Purojana, Duryodhana's henchman, follows them wherever they go. He follows them. So, so they take all of Duryodhana out of the city, and the engineer starts his work. He starts digging this tunnel in the house. And anyway, so uh, make a long story short, at a certain time, uh, Duryodhana gives the word, and they burn the house down. The Pandavas escape. 
And Purojana, the bad guy working for Diodon, he's actually burned up in the fire. What the Pandavas do is, in fact, they set fire to their own house. They preempt. They, they find out when the fire is supposed to be, but before the fire is set, they set the fire themselves. And then they escape through the tunnel. Anyway, so then they, they escape this tunnel, and they, the tunnel leads out of the city. They're out of the city, and they have to run. Bhima is so powerful, he takes all his four brothers and his mother on his shoulders, and he just runs. <laughs> because he's the son of the wind. Again, Bhima is someone who's half God, half human. And so he, just, he literally runs like the wind. And along the way, there's, there's so many, I can't tell you everything, because there's just too many stories, you know. But anyway, these amazing things happen along the way. And they come to the city of Ekachakra. Ekachakra, and they disguise themselves as Brahmins. Very interesting. Because, how should I, uh, the Pandavas, Parochana, the bad guy, died in the fire. So as far as Duryodhana is concerned, the Pandavas are dead. He considers the Pandavas dead because there's no one there. Parochana can't say, I didn't set the fire, because he's dead too. So they kind of arrange it so that the world thinks the Pandavas are dead. And they go into hiding. They, they, they disguise themselves as Brahmins. Because they grew up as Brahmins, so they can actually walk and talk like Brahmins. They, it, it's like if you grew up speaking a certain language, and then your parents moved to another country, you can always go back to your first language, and you can speak it perfectly. So the, Bra- so the Pandas start pretending they're Brahmins. They go to Ekachakra, and as, and as young Brahmins with their mother, they live in the house of a Brahmin, who takes them in, a very generous, hospitable Brahmin with his wife and, and daughter and son. And they're living there very happily. <coughs> they're living there very happily, but then... God, there's so much to tell. Anyway, one day, uh, the Pandavas are all out, and only uh, Bhima, and oh, I think only Bhima and Kunti are home. And so, the mother. So she hears them, this Brahmin family, wailing in this room behind closed doors. They're all crying, and so she listens in, and the father says, I want to die. And the mother says, no, I should die. And then the daughter says, no, I should die. She says, what is going on here? She goes into the room, and it turns out that there's a very weak king in that region, and there's a rakshasa, sort of like this man-eating monster-type gentleman, who lives in that area named Baka. And he terrorizes the city. And the city made this agreement with him that that in order that Baka not just kill everyone, that every month, that the city has to provide one human, a wagon load of food and one human as the, um, what do you call it, the entree. So, because he's a man-eater. And so, it's like a horrible thing and you can't escape the city. And he didn't act, so, so every month, he, one family would have a rotation. So that month, it was that family's turn. The Brahmin family hosting the Pandavas had to send one member of their family, this Rakshasa, or he would just kill everyone. And so the father said, I'll go. And the mother said, and so each one of the family was arguing that, no, I should go. And so then Kunti just walks in and says, well, actually, none of you have to go because my son Bhima, who is actually his favorite sport is killing rakshasas. That's, he sort of does it like athletically as a sport. So, so, so Kunti says, my son is a powerful Brahman and he has all these really good mantras and he has special mantras to kill rakshasas. So he'll do it. He'll, we can send him. The family says, no, we can't sacrifice a guest. And Kuti says, we're not sacrificing anybody here. So, 
Anyway, so they, they load up the wagon with food, and Bhima, they sent Bhima, and Bhima's got such an appetite, one of his names is Prakodra, wolf belly, that by the time the wagon gets to the Rakshasa's place, he's actually eaten all the food. And so there's this really hilarious scene where the Rakshasa comes, and he's enraged because Bhima's eating his food, and so he, he takes this huge club and hits Bhima over the head, and Bhima just reaches up with one hand, stops the club, and just finishes the last one, and then washes his hands. And then takes his club and basically bashes the Rakshasa's brain. I mean, they have this whole fight. They have this whole fight, and Bhima is like a mean dude. Bhima! Because this Rakshasa has been killing so many innocent people, so what he finally does is, if you're into mixed martial arts, he sort of spins him around, throws him down on the ground on, a, on, on, you know, on his face, and then grabs his legs with his right arm, grabs him around the neck with his left arm, bends and breaks him backwards. It's sort of like... And yeah, you can ruin your whole day. So then, <laughs> then he takes he takes his body, which is broken backwards, this big monster, and throws it at the city gate as a warning to all the other rakshasas in the area, like go into some other line of, of work. So, but then the Pandavas figure they better leave because word will get around. Actually, and, and so then people start asking like, who killed the rakshasa? So then the Pandavas think we better get out of town because we don't want a lot of publicity here. And so it turns out that an old friend of Pandu who's now dead, Drupada, King Drupada, has this daughter who's like the most beautiful princess in the world, and she's going to have a Swayamvara ceremony, which means she's going to choose her husband. So all the princes, princes only, please, you know, all the princes come there, and they compete, and, and then the princess chooses one. And so, the, and so these events were also opportunities for distribution of great amounts of charity. So the Brahmins would all go because of these events. The kings would actually establish their reputations and bring down auspiciousness. We have the whole thing about auspiciousness by giving charity to Brahmins. The Brahmins, you know, they wouldn't miss these events. It was a chance to really kind of like, you know, fix yourself up financially for the year. So the Pandavas decide, let's go to that Swayamvara. And all kinds of amazing things happen on the way, which I don't have time for. And so when they get there, there's a bow. There's this bow, which is like no one can string. It's so, you know, it's like this steel bow, whatever it's made out of. So what you've got to do is, first of all, you have to string the bow, which practically no human being can do. You have to string the bow. And once you string the bow, there's a, there's like this little machine that's revolving around. And as this wheel turns, there's one little opening in the wheel. And as the wheel's spinning, you've got to shoot an arrow through the, the opening. There's one opening on the wheel as it's spinning around. And, now that is archery, and, and hit the target through this little hole in a spinning wheel. So anyway, all the great princes of the earth, including Duryodhana, he's there too. Everyone's there because Draupadi is just the most attractive princess in the world. And she's, a, she's actually herself half goddess because she was born out of a fire altar. So, anyway, uh, all the princes of the world try, no one can do it. Most of them can't spring the bow. Actually, the, we're actually reading that text. I'm, I'm teaching an advanced Sanskrit class. We're reading that. And so, um, a lot of the princes got beat up by the bow. They tried to spring it, and the, the bow would spring back. And so, there are all these big, powerful warriors, like, lying around the ground, you know, bruised. And, and, and I mean, it was, the bow was just beating everyone up. So, finally, everyone failed. And then Arjun decide, hey... What the heck? Because Arjun is actually the greatest archer in the world. He's the greatest archer in the world. And so he goes there. 
he stands up and he's, and he's in disguise. The Pandavas are all like these super buff guys. So they have sort of like these Jedi Knight robes on, so no one will you know, see their physique. And so Arjun kind of gets up, everyone thinks he's just some Brahmin guy, some Brahmin student. And he walks up, and that alone is just like pandemonium, because like Brahmins just don't compete in these things. These things are for warriors, some Brahmin competing like this. He walks up there, strings the bow, and actually hits the target, and starts to walk off with Jopati. And the kings go crazy, because as you, you've read, there was this tension between Brahmins and, prince, Brahmins and kings, and so it's like, what are you doing? We give, charity, we give charity to you, and you're stealing our women now. It's like, hey, you know, hands off our women. These, these are, this is a princess. So the kings are going crazy. By now, most, and by now, the three, Yudhisthira, the two twins, have already left to go see about their mother who wasn't there. And uh, so then Drupada, they get mad at the father who, who gave his daughter to this Brahmin. So they start chasing Drupada. I mean, he was their host. They were all glorifying him, and now they chase him. He runs and hides with the Brahmins. See what they won't kill him. And so then the, the warriors are all coming out, and then Bhima and Arjun just step forward, grab weapons. Arjun still got his bow, and they turn around to face all the kings. Anyway, then this great battle breaks out, and, they, and, and so the, the warriors think these are just Brahmins, but they don't want to hurt them. But then Arjun and Bhima fight so hard, they get they think, oh my God, who are these people? Make a long story short, uh, they go they go with Jovadi. Now what's happened is the Pandavas have an alliance. They just married into this powerful royal family. And therefore, they can come out of hiding because they have, they, have, they have an army behind them. They have a country behind them. So they do come out of hiding. And uh, Duryodhana is really uh, in anxiety. He's really in anxiety because if you try to kill someone and you miss, and that person comes back at you with an army, it's, it's bad news. So, at that point, they have this emergency meeting at Hastinapur, like, what are we going to do now? And they decide, okay, we, you know, there's all kinds of ideas, like Duryodhana and Karna say, let's kill the Pandavas, and they decide, well, we can't do that, they're too powerful, let's negotiate, diplomacy, they're having, finally they decide, okay, diplomacy. So they send Vidura, because Vidura is the only nice one, and the Pandavas decide, okay, we won't fight, we'll unite the family again, and uh, we'll divide the kingdom. They decide to divide the kingdom. And the Pandavas are so humble, they say, okay, the Duryodhana can keep the imperial capital. And they'll take this undeveloped land called Kandava Prasta or Indra Prasta. And what the Pandavas do in a very short time is out of this wilderness, they create this beautiful capital city. It becomes the most prosperous city in the world. And uh, you know, the, all kinds of artisans go there, great architecture. They just, they just create this super city. And suddenly Indra Prasta starts rivaling Hastinapur. So then Krishna, oh by the way, after Draupadi Swayambara, that's the first time Krishna appears in the Mahabharata. And he, from the very beginning, it's clear that this is not an ordinary guy. Because the Pandavas are in disguise. No one knows them. Even Duryodhana, no one can recognize them. They're masters of disguise. So Krishna, with his brother Balaram, sort of standing there watching, he says, hey, uh, isn't that Yudhisthira over there? And isn't that our cousin Bhima? Isn't that our Arjuna? He just sees everyone immediately. So how does he know it? Well, because Krishna knows everything. So Krishna immediately understands who they all are. And at that point, after they win Draupadi, Arjun wins Draupadi, uh, Krishna and Balaram go over and introduce themselves and say, we know you're the Pandavas and we're your cousins. We've come here to help you. And if you go back to the story I told last time about the, about the alien invasion of the earth, 
actually when when these aliens, these uh, asuras, demons, and so on, invaded the earth. To, and Duryodhana is one of them, by the way. Duryodhana is one of these aliens. And that comes out very clearly in the story. Duryodhana himself is one of the aliens who have come to take over the earth. And so the earth goddess went to Brahma, the creator. Brahma went to Vishnu. And now Vishnu himself is on the earth in the form of Krishna. So actually, Vishnu has personally come to the earth to take care of business. And actually, the Pandavas, never their fathers, are all gods. So, the birth of the Pandavas, the Pandavas have taken birth on the earth as part of the effort to stop this invasion of the earth and this effort to take over the universe. So the gods are fighting back in the form of the Pandavas are all fathered by gods and Vishnu himself has now come to the earth as Krishna. So that's what's going on in the cosmic level. And um, then what happens? Um, let's see. So, Duryodhana, oh, then Krishna. Krishna encourages Yudhisthira. He says, Yudhisthira, you are a very common name of Yudhisthira, which everyone in India knows. Yudhisthira is called Dharma Raj, the king of Dharma. <coughs> and because he is the king of virtue, of morality, Krishna wants Yudhisthira to be the ruler. First of all, because it's his legitimate right. After all, it's his father who was the, the real king. And the kingdom was usurped, it was stolen. So for, on those grounds, Yudhisthira should rule. And also, he's the most virtuous king in the world. So Krishna says to Yudhisthira, I want you to rule the world. But to do that, he has to perform a Rajasuya sacrifice, which you must have read about in your book. The Rajasuya sacrifice, the sacrifice which you let a horse wander and so on, is a sacrifice in which basically you send around a challenge to all the kingdoms. And you have to either accept that Yudhisthira will be the king of kings, or you have, to, you have to challenge you to steer and fight. So the four Pandavas go off in the four directions. I think, uh, who is it? Uh, Bhima, Arjun goes to the north. Bhima goes to the east. Uh, Sahadev goes to the south. And Nakula goes to the west. Anyway, the four Pandavas split up. Yudhisthira stays in the capital. They go in the four directions. Some people want to contest it. They have these fights. Pandavas win. And... So basically, Yudhisthira will be the king of kings, Samraj, Raja, Raja. And so they perform this great Rajasuya, and all the kings of the world come to the sacrifice. Even Duryodhana, who really can't stand it, he's really envious, but he comes also. What happens is that the Pandava's palace was built for them by this uh, Donava, this person who technically was in the demon family, but sort of a nice guy, and owed something to the Pandavas. He built them this magical palace. So in this palace... Uh, Land looked like water, and water looked like land in certain places. So Duryodhana entered this sort of magical part of the palace, and uh, there was a place that was solid, that looked like water, so he kind of like picked his clothes up, and he was like tiptoeing through it, and, and then he saw something looked solid, but it was water, and he fell in. And uh, Bhima started laughing, Krishna started laughing. Because, I mean, here's Duryodhana, who's a murderer. It's like, okay, you tried to murder us. We're just laughing at you. I mean, yeah, we're the bad guys. So, so Duryodhana was so angry. First of all, he was so angry to see the success of the Pandavas because he'd come to the earth to take over. He couldn't stand it. So when he got back to his capital, he was so depressed. He was literally like, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. His father was worried. He couldn't stand the success of the Pandavas. So he told his father, you order the Pandavas to come for a gambling match because they won't refuse you. And if they come to a gambling match, uh, we can steal their kingdom in a gambling match. Because also kings were obliged to accept a challenge. Warriors. So basically, they have Yudhisthira come. Yudhisthira kind of has a 
gambling addiction problem, and he's not very good at it. And um, uh, Duryodhana's uncle, Shakuni, good old uncle is Shakuni, is a very good gambler and cheater, and so basically they cheat the Pandavas out of their kingdom. And I have to give a few de- details, there's so much to tell, but so the Pandavas are sent into exile. The terms are that they have to go for, thir- isn't it 13 years? I think they have to be in exile in the forest. In the 14th year, they have to live somewhere within the realm of the Kurus, incognito. And if they're discovered during that one year, they have to go for 14 more years. So this is called Vanavasa. Kunti doesn't go into the forest. She, at this point, is too much for her. The Pandavas go with Draupadi. Who actually, at another point I meant, I did polyandry. She actually accepted all five Pandavas to keep them united. But Draupadi actually came to wife all five Pandavas. So it's kind of like, uh, not only polygamy, it's sometimes polyandry. And Draupadi was a perfect wife to fi- these five husbands. Anyway, that's another amazing story. So they go out into the forest, the Vanavasa. Yes? I just want to ask this simple question. If Duryodhan got Yudhishthira's kingdom, that means he's king of the world? Um, yeah, for the world, you could say that part of Asia. Right, right. He, he not only conquested what they had, but whatever they had conquested. In Conquered, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So now when the Pandavas in the forest, all things, there's a whole amazing forest book. The Pandavas in the forest. For example, Arjun goes into the, in, in the they say, way up in the Himalayan mountains is actually a gateway to higher planets, to higher worlds. So Arjun goes there to these higher worlds and he gets these celestial weapons because they know that when the 14 years are up, they're going to give us our kingdom back or there will be war. Because one thing that's said again and again in the Mahabharata, in Sanskrit, that the kingdom was Peter Paitamaharaja that it was the kingdom of their fathers and, and, and their fathers, their forefathers. This was their kingdom that had been stolen. And so, uh, another thing that happens when their forest is, uh, well, all kinds of things happen. So, they make it through the 13 years in the forest. And then finally, they spend a year in Kavita. They choose the kingdom of Virat, which is sort of west, west of Indraprastha. And they have to disguise themselves, so it's, it's actually pretty funny. Uh, Yudhisthira, who's now become a master of gambling, he actually mastered the art when he was in exile, he becomes the, uh, the Brahmin gambling guru for the local king, Virat. Uh, Bhima becomes the head of the kitchen. He gets a job as a cook, and he loves to eat. And uh, he's a big, powerful guy. And then Arjun, Arjun, the greatest warrior, actually gets, a, he, he sort of disguises himself as an effeminate dancing teacher. Who, who is so effeminate that uh, the king doesn't think there's any problem letting him kind of just, you know, stay with the princesses and, and teach them dancing. And uh, Nakula, one of the twins, gets a job ahead of the stables. He's like the horse trainer, the local Virat kingdom horse whisperer. And, uh, and Sandhya, the youngest, takes care of the cows. So they're incognito. Finally, just as the year is ending, uh, Duryodhana happens to invade that kingdom. He actually invades that kingdom, not knowing the Pandavas are there. And so he invades just as the year is up. And so the local prince is very proud. He starts running, and then Arjun, who's still got his skirt on, because he was like this effeminate dancing teacher, wears his skirt. And so he goes out, and finally the year is up. He goes and gets his weapons they've hidden, and there's this great scene where he's just like in ecstasy to get his hands on his weapons again. And then he turns, and he just twangs his bow, and every warrior in the world knows the sound of Arjuna's bow. So just hearing that sound, everyone's like, oh my God. So anyway, so then Arjun fights off the Kurus, he repels this invasion, and they come out of hiding now. They demand their kingdom back, and the Kurus refuse to give them their kingdom. So they negotiate, there's diplomacy, 
and it looks and, and looks like there's going to be war. And that's what we'll start talking about tomorrow, uh, Monday, the war, and on that battlefield, Krishna speaks of Bhagavad Gita.